Well, we are in Isaiah chapter 9 this morning. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 8 through 10, 4. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 8 through chapter 10, verse 4. This is a four-part section. And as you turn there, I'll just kind of remind you that the book of Isaiah rotates sort of between three basic themes, and it just keeps going back through those basic things. One is a call to repentance of the people, a proclamation of judgment over the people for their wickedness and for their sin. That's one. The next is to the hope of restoration of the nation, the hope of ascending of a Messiah looking forward to a Messiah, and then even further, as we'll see, to the hope of heaven, to the hope of escaping this sinful world and entering into the glory of heaven. That's the second major theme of Isaiah. That's where we were in the earlier part of chapter 9 when I was with you two weeks ago. And the third, which we will get to soon enough, is a review of the historical situation, exactly what was happening in the nation and trying to bring that to bear on these themes of repentance and of hope of salvation. So today's message is in the first category, judgment and a call to repentance. This is not an easy message to hear, but it was recorded for us in Scripture. And everything given for us in Scripture is profitable. It's good for our hearing that we might listen to what is said. It was, re- it was difficult for the people back then to hear it, and it's difficult for us to hear it today. It was largely rejected by the people that heard it back then, And I'll say that it's largely rejected by the people that hear it today. There is a phrase that is repeated four times in this passage. About every five verses, this phrase is repeated to drive it home. And we're going to learn about this phrase this morning. The phrase is this. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Let's pay attention to that as we read through this. Please stand to honor the Lord as we read his word today in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 8 through 10, 4. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and honored man is the head, the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. They devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. 
Manasseh devours Ephraim, Ephraim devours Manasseh, and together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Woe to those who decree iniquitous degrees, and the writer who keeps writing oppression, to turn aside the needy from justice, to rob the poor of my people of their right. The widows may be their spoil, and they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment, in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help, and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For this is his anger. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Verse 8, Isaiah makes clear that this word is for all of Israel. It is for both Israel and Judah. If you've been here with us in past messages, by this point in the history of Israel, the nation is divided. It, is, it started unified and is through civil war been divided into two parts, Israel and Judah. But this word is for all the people. All the people will know the judgment of the Lord for their wickedness. And it is very clear from the beginning that there is a way in which these people are walking and a way in which they are conducting themselves. And it is as those who speak in pride. All the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart. The word pride is in the scriptures all the time. And every time it is used, it is used of something that is sinful. Pride is the attitude of the heart that is raised up in rebellion against God. It is the summary word of a people whose hearts will not hear the direction and the warnings of the Lord. Their hearts are hard against the Lord and their necks are stiff. They are sure that they know a better way and that they can do better than what the Lord has for them and they are going in the direction that they want to go and they don't care what Isaiah has to say about it. They have no fear of the Lord. They have no humility of heart before God. They have no reverence or honor for the things of the Lord. Their hearts are filled with pride and with arrogance. We have to stop here and make a note because it is no coincidence that this very attitude continues to mark the ungodly in our day and age. It has always marked the ungodly in every day and age. And it is no coincidence at all that this month, which has been somehow set aside to celebrate and promote what God has declared to be sexual sin and perversion, is called Pride Month. It is a month that goes, this description goes back to ancient times. People taking on an attitude of militant pride to press off the things of God. There is no fear of the Lord. There is no humility before God. There is no reverence or honor. There is pride. And there's nothing new under the sun. What I want you to see here is that this has been happening for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And that what is happening today is the same hard heart that has been amongst all unbelieving people as long as the gospel of Jesus Christ has been preached. And that is what Isaiah is preaching. He's preaching ultimately the good news that there can be the forgiveness of sins if and only if we will turn away from our sins and turn to what the Lord has. 
As the Lord judges evil and rebellion of old, he will also judge it today. In verse 10, we get to what the people say about this. This people who walk in pride and arrogance, they say this in verse 10. The bricks have fallen, but we will build dressed stones. The sycamores are cut, but we will plant cedars. So what God is breaking down, we will build back up better. We don't care what the Lord has to say. If bricks are torn down, we're going to make it better than it was before. Dressed stones, the trees that were cut, we're going to plant new ones. You can say that the Lord is going to bring us low, but we're going to bring ourselves up higher than we once were. But in verse 11, it talks about the Lord raising up adversaries. The Lord comes in and raises up or stirs up enemies against his own people. Three are listed here. Rezin, the king of Aram, who was an enemy of the people of Israel. The Syrians on the east, the Philistines on the west. Every country is surrounded by enemies. If you read history at all, it is the rising and falling of nations. As enemy, enemies come against each other and foes come in war. And when we read the scriptures, we find out that the Lord is either sustaining or undoing countries, depending upon his pleasure with them and his purposes toward them. And the Lord's purposes at this point in time with the people of Judah and the people of Israel is to discipline them through judgment. And the first way he's going to do this is by weakening them and bringing their enemies against them. To do what? This word is used many times in these verses that we read. And it is to devour. Devour is a, is a powerful word. It's the, it's the eating up of something until it's gone. And you do not want your enemies devouring you. When the Lord pulls back the gates and removes the hedges of protection and enemies come in to devour, this is the judgment of the Lord. In verse 12b, it's the first repetition of these things. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Let's talk about this phrase a little bit. If something is repeated over and over as you're reading through the Bible, you should stop and say, wait, didn't I just hear that? Yeah, I did just hear that. Wait, I just heard that four times. That means we should stop and look at this and see why is the Lord repeating himself over and over. The Lord is clearly angry with his people. And anger, the anger of the Lord is not like our anger. It's not something that is just purely emotional and, and whimsical. It is based upon his character and his understanding of what is morally right and morally wrong, which flows from his own person. And we must understand this morning that the anger of God towards sin is real. God is not indifferent towards evil. Many of us are. Like we've, we've listened to the news so many times, we've heard so many bad things, we just, we just turn it off. We're just, I'm, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm indifferent towards it. God is not tolerant of evil. He has a righteous hatred of all things that are evil. And he will judge the wicked fully and he will judge them with a just judgment. And when it comes to the moral commands of God, God is not interested in things that are diverse. There are many things in this world that are filled with diversity, but when it comes to the moral commands of God, diversity is not a virtue. God has commanded his moral will and his moral ways, and we will either obey those things or we will rebel against them. And there is no other series of categories in the scripture. We see sin often by scale where God sees it by holiness. Let me help you to understand what I mean by that. 
Often we only see sin by scale, which means that it has to be in a great magnitude for us to agree that something is sinful. It has to be a mass murder for people to really say, yeah, that is definitely evil. Or it has to be child pornography for people to say, yes, that is really evil. Or it has to be a huge amount of theft for people to say, yeah, you shouldn't steal that much money. In order for our consciences to be offended and to be awakened, there so often has to be a tremendous amount of evil before we recognize that it is in fact evil. But still there is a resident conscience in all of us that says, yes, that is evil. And that person or persons deserve some sort of judgment. And that's the basis of our justice system. But we need to understand that the holiness of God is altogether different. Because God is perfectly holy, and it does not take a great amount of sin to offend his conscience. In his holiness, he sees every individual act of sin for exactly what it is, which is every single lie and every single act of greed and every single outburst of anger against a person because of your hatred for them is sin. And the Lord judges every act for what it is, which is an act of sin. We are only offended by the gross outbreaking of sin. And it takes that much for us to be offended. But the Lord God is offended in every sinful act, demanding justice in accord with his perfect law. This speaks about the hand of God as well, that his hand is outstretched still. The scriptures say much about the hand of the Lord. It often contrasts the hand of the Lord with the hand of an idol. That idols have eyes that cannot see, ears that cannot hear, hands that cannot act. It's, it's also no coincidence that often idols have many hands. If you've seen some of the Far Eastern idols, they've got arms everywhere to make you think that, well, I guess if he has lots and lots of arms, that he can do more with it. But those arms can't do a thing that's part of an idol. But the hand of the Lord is able to act the eyes of the Lord see, the ears of the Lord hear, and he is acting in the world. The work of the Lord's hand is not like an ideal or a philosophy. These are suggestions, but suggestions that must be taken up by you. And only your power can enact what is happening. And if you are not able to do it, then you can, and it cannot be done. And every single one of us here know that our power is little. And when we look at the hugeness of the world and the problems and the struggles of the world, we know that we can do very little about it. But God acts in the world. And when the Lord acts in the world, he works to punish the wicked and to uphold the righteous. And so there's a question here. There's lots of questions that come into this passage, and I'm going to ask you a number of them today. But one that is important is how serious do you take sin? How seriously do you take sin? When you look at the sin of your own life and the sin of others, do you take it seriously or do you wink at it and allow it to go by? I'll tell you that sin destroys. Sin will destroy you and it will destroy those that are around you. And those of us that have some more years on our lives know that. We know that when we sin and when others sin, their sin does not only affect them, but it affects those around them because sin is a destroyer. And God's judgment on you does not only affect you, but others. 
When the Lord disciplines a person, his discipline against them affects not only them, but those around them. And that's going to happen with this nation. These leaders, these false prophets that are leading this nation into sin, there's going to be judgment upon it, and it's going to affect so many people. All this together is supposed to create a fear of the Lord. If you've read much in the Bible, you've seen this phrase, the fear of the Lord. When we understand that sin is serious and that God is holy and that he is all powerful and that he cares about sin and that he will judge sin, it begins to create a fear in our heart of God. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is in fact the beginning of wisdom. It is the beginning of life. It is the start of repentance and it is in fact the foundation of salvation. It's very, very similar to what we see in a, in a good father in a family with children, that the father loves the children, and yet he disciplines the children. And when a child grows up, begins to have a right fear of that father, and the fear of the discipline holds them back from things that are evil. And this is something that is good and is used in the life of a child when applied correctly and, and applied in a way that the Lord would have it applied, applied in a way that is like the way in which the Lord works in our lives. It restrains us and holds us back from evil. It is paired with love and mercy and kindness and many other things, but it begins with a fear of the Lord. But for all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. When we go to the second part, which is verses 13 through 17, it continues on. Though disciplined, they will not turn away from their sins. They will not turn away from their sins as a nation and they will not turn away from their sins personally. The discipline of the Lord, as it says in these verses, is an act of mercy. It is an act of patience. Because the discipline of the Lord gives them a chance to turn away. They don't, they don't deserve that chance. They have acted for many generations as a wicked nation. And they deserve to be judged right then and there. But the Lord is long-suffering and he is patient. And he is constantly calling people to himself. And he is giving them yet another chance. And yet another chance to turn their hearts away from sin and evil. But in verse 14, the Lord begins to cut off. It says, the Lord cuts off from Israel the head and the tail, and he goes on to explain what the head and the tail is. The head is the elders and the honored people of that society that were supposed to be leading the society. But instead of the leading the society towards good, they were allowing the people indulgence and wickedness and crime. Governance of people is supposed to be the holding back of the people from evil. That's the nature of good government. It holds back chaos. It brings order. It brings justice. It encourages what is good, and it puts down what is bad. But this is not, as what is, this is not what is happening in Judah. The Lord also is cutting off the tail, which are the prophets. He gives these false prophets the place of the tail, the most dishonored, end of the animal, which is those who claim to represent God, who claim to speak for God, but instead of speaking for God, they are false guides and they are misleading the people. Every nation and every time, including our time, has false prophets and teachers. 
those that mislead the people, those who tell them what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. And in doing so, they lead the people away from the Lord. And the nation of Judah at that time has a head of leaders who dishonor the Lord and open up the nation to every evil thing. And they have false prophets that are telling them that what they are doing is great and they ought to carry on with it and the Lord will bless them and Isaiah is lying to them. But Isaiah carries on in verse 17 to condemn a group that is not often condemned, which ought to cause us to look at this and say, why is Isaiah speaking to this? He speaks of the young men and the fatherless and the widows. And he speaks of this group of people as being godless and evil and speaking disgraceful things. He's going to go on later to say how the Lord seeks always the protection of the weak and the poor as a group of people. But as individuals, every one of those individuals will be held accountable for their own actions. And if you are a young person here today, God does not wink at your sin because you're young and give you a pass on that until you become an adult. The sinful things that you do in your youth that you know are sinful are held against you. And the Lord God is calling for them to turn away from their evil and from their godlessness. And those who are poor do not get a pass on their sin because they're poor. They still will stand before the Lord. And in your poverty, you must be a God-fearing person, a person that does not speak disgraceful things and do evil. You must still serve the Lord. But the picture here is a whole nation, head, tail, young, old, rich, poor, that have all gone away from the Lord. Altogether, the nation has lost its moral sense. It is swollen with pride and evil and rebellion. And it looks like what Jesus says in Matthew 15, 14. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. And so that's what you have. You have the blind leading the blind and the whole nation is a disaster. And yet, for all his anger, all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Going to the third section, verses 18 through 21, we have the wickedness of the people burning like a fire, burning like a consuming and destroying fire. The wickedness of the people is consuming the nation. The wrath of the Lord towards sin adds to and completes the direction that the nation is already headed in, which is self-destruction. This is a constant theme, beginning from the prophets and going all through the New Testament, the idea of the Lord removing his hand from a people. We are not neutral in our hearts. The hearts of the people, all people, are inherently sinful. And the Lord is working to restrain our sinful hearts and working to change our hearts to make us more like his son Jesus. But when the Lord removes his influence from our hearts and removes his influence from a nation, all the sinfulness of the hearts of the nation break out and there is self-destruction. This is what is being spoken of here and this is exactly what is being spoken of in the New Testament by Paul in Romans chapter 1 verse 28. When he says, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. 
It's a long, there's a long description of the sinfulness of humanity in Romans chapter one because this is where the gospel always begins. The good news of salvation always begins with a clear and difficult description of our own sinfulness. And in this long description of sinfulness in Romans chapter one, Paul says that eventually the Lord removes himself and gives them up to their own sinfulness. And in that, in that passage, it is specifically related to sexual sin and specifically related to homosexual sin. And it is something that is a debasing of the nation and the nation descending into a great sinfulness. And the Lord allowing it to happen. And as he allows it to happen, the nation self-destructs through eating themselves alive, similar to a fire destroying, or as we'll see, a, a self-destructive devouring. In verse 19, the second part, it speaks of the people themselves as the fuel of the fire. Their sinful passions are allowed to burn until their lives in the nation is consumed with all of their sinful passion. The second part of uh, 19 into 20 talks about this devouring. The people eat, but they're never satisfied. They lust, but they are never content. And there are these pictures of them eating themselves, which is, I believe, symbolic of the self-destruction of a nation. And it goes all the way down to verse 21 which is the devouring of civil war. In verse 21, Manasseh and Ephraim are tribes and portions of the nation as the nation begins to fight amongst itself. And we know throughout history that every nation that is self-destructing, one of the low points of that self-destruction is civil war, where brother begins to kill brother, literally, and the nation begins to fall to pieces. Literally killing each other over these things, until the struggle of the nation is spent, the wealth of the nation is spent, the peace of the nation is spent, and it is overtaken by its enemies, the enemies that the Lord brings upon them. This is a low place, but even in this low place, which is yet to come for Judah, the judgment of the Lord is not complete. And so we go on to the fourth section. Chapter 10, verses one through four, begins with the proclamation of woe. Woe is a proclamation of doom, judgment that is coming. Jesus used this same proclamation, woe unto you for various things. Here it is, woe unto them for those who decree sinful laws. This goes back to the people that are supposed to be leading the nation, excuse me, leading the nation, but in leading the nation, they are passing laws that celebrate, allow, or mandate what God has forgiven. Uh, I'm sorry, what God has forbidden. It's an important uh, word change there. Uh, laws, that God laws that celebrate, allow, or mandate what God has forbidden. This goes back to our leaders earlier here, these false leaders that are not governing in a way that upholds righteousness, but are in fact governing, governing in a way that promotes unrighteousness. We all have an understanding of what that means. We all understand what it means for laws to be passed that are directly against what the Lord would have us to do. Laws that are unrighteous and are ungodly. Laws that decree iniquity, which is exactly what is said here in chapter 10, verse one. Some of the examples that is given by Isaiah is in verse two. Examples of blocking justice for the needy robbing the poor of what is due them, taking advantage of widows, praying on the orphan. 
These are regular themes throughout the book of Isaiah and regular themes throughout the prophets in the Old Testament where the rich and the powerful are taking advantage of the weak and crushing them for their own benefit, extracting what is little left in them to enrich and strengthen themselves. And this has always been the pattern of the world. And yet all through the book of Isaiah and the other prophets and in the period of Jesus and down to our day, In the scripture, the Lord takes peculiar care of the poor. He does not allow oppression of the weak and the needy to go unpunished. And we as Christians should care for the poor, should care for the weak, should care for justice for those who are in need. And this is always a theme, a theme that we're going to see come up over and over and over in the book of Isaiah. That the weak who cannot defend themselves, the Lord comes in and works to defend them on his own behalf. Yet for all this, the hand of the Lord to judge is stretched out still. A lot being said in these verses. I hope that you can understand some of what I'm saying here because as we look at this, it should cause us to do a number of things. One of the first things that it should cause us to do is to examine ourselves and to examine our nation. To look at what is happening in our nation And look at what our role is in our own nation. Because a nation is made up of the individual people that are in it. And I would argue to you this morning that in almost every way, the evil of our nation now surpasses the evil of the nation of Judah. And that may be shocking to you. But when you look at what we are doing to the unborn, when you look at the perversion of our country, and you compare that to what is happening in Judah, it seems on every level it is both numerically and in type worse than what was happening in Judah. And if that is true, we must look at ourselves. Because Isaiah, though he is appealing to the nation, he is specifically appealing to individuals. Because nations are not saved. Individuals are saved. Individual people turn away from their sin. And when they turn away from their sin and believe, they individually are changed. And then groups are changed. And a nation is changed through the heart of individuals being changed. I asked you earlier, what is your heart towards sin? What do, you, do you take sin seriously? But another question we must ask and getting near the end of our time here this morning is what will quench the righteous anger of God towards sin? The righteous anger of God is unquenched throughout this entire passage. So we have to get to the end of the passage and say what will quench the righteous anger of God? What will satisfy his perfect justice? And the answer may be shocking to you, but it is consistent throughout Scripture. The only thing that will satisfy the righteous indignation of the Lord is death. Wow. Really? In Genesis chapter 2, when our forefathers, our, our first parents, Adam and Eve, they were given one command, do not eat of this tree. You can eat of everything you want to but you are forbidden to touch and eat of this one tree. And of course they rebel and they go against the Lord and they are told you shall surely what? Die. And they did. They died for their sin. In Romans chapter six, verse 23, lest you think this is an Old Testament thing, it's not. Paul writes again, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
No sin or evil will ever enter into the heavenly city of God. Heaven would not be heaven if sinful people rolled up in there with all their sin carried along with them and all their pride and all their arrogance. But no such pride or arrogance or evil will ever enter into the city of God. And so often people wonder, why is it that we have this cross? Why is it that Jesus died? This seems so archaic, so old, so unlike our modern time. But our only hope is the salvation of Jesus Christ. You must understand that Jesus died as a substitute. He bore the justice of all of our sins in his own body on the cross, that he might be our substitute, that he died in our stead, and that he met the perfect justice of God. That every wicked thing ever done poured out upon Jesus that those who trust in him might be saved. And yet Jesus is not dead. He did not remain in the grave. He has risen again unto eternal life. And his hand is outstretched now, not in vengeance, but with grace and mercy. Calling people unto himself. If you will repent of your sins and believe in me, by mercy and by grace alone, you will be forgiven of your sins. Jesus has come not to judge, but to save the lost, to save those who are lost in their sins. John chapter 5, verse 44, which was one of my grandmother's favorite verses, says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Those of you who will hear the word of the Lord and turn away from your sins and believe in Jesus, you will not come into judgment, but you will pass into eternal life. Slow was the anger and the long-suffering of the Lord toward Israel and towards Judah, always willing to relent if they would repent, but they would not. Slow is the anger of the Lord and his long-suffering towards you. And he will pardon your sins for the sake of Jesus if you will believe in him. If you will turn away from your sins and believe in the salvation of Jesus, you will have eternal life this morning and this very hour. And so I close this with this. Chapter 10, verse 3 of what we've read this morning. The last question of the day. The question that comes from Isaiah at the end of this. What will you do on the day of punishment? It's an important question. When the day of the judgment of the Lord comes, what will you do? If you reject the salvation of Jesus, there will be nowhere to hide. He gives some examples of where people will hide, and they're not good examples. When the day of judgment comes for you before the Lord, you will stand before the Lord alone with nowhere to hide. And the great holiness of the Lord will look down upon you and expose every sin that has ever been a part of your life. And there will be nothing to plead other than the mercy of Jesus Christ. But when we plead the mercy of Jesus, it will be enough because he is our savior. And we will be clothed in his righteousness. And in his righteousness, we will be welcomed into the kingdom of God. And this is the good news, the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.